Welcome to this talk from the Kanando Zen Meditation Center. Located in Mountain View, California, Kanando's meditation practice is open to the public. For more information or to get in touch with us, you can visit our website at kanando.org. That's K A N N O N D O.org. So, good evening, everyone. And good evening, everyone at home in Zoom. It's really nice to see so many of you. So, um, this lecture is for Diane and for Dan and for Umar and Lee because you were there with me uh, when this came up. And I just wanted to acknowledge um, that it meant a lot to me to see all of you at the Branching Streams Conference and that you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about when I do this. <laughs> the title of this is Practicing Loss. Hmm. So right now, uh, we are experiencing terrible loss in the world. There's loss on a global scale with wars in Ukraine, and wars in Israel and Gaza, and a war in Syria, and I'm sure there are many other wars that I'm not even familiar with. It seems to be something that humans do. And then there's the other part of the global scale of loss. Uh, recently, it was Indigenous Peoples Day. Indigenous people in this country lost their entire country to Europeans. And everyone is trying to do the same thing. Everyone is trying to find a peaceful way to live in a world uh, that doesn't seem to want to be very peaceful. But then, of course, that, that's only just the global piece. There's, there's the national piece where it feels like we're on the edge of losing our democracy. That's a very scary thought. And we all have to be very aware of how precious that is. And then, of course, there's personal loss, the thing that affects each of us every day. And I'm sure if I asked each one of you here, there would be something that you have lost. You have lost family members. You have lost friends. You have lost eyesight. You have lost hearing. The list goes on and on. So many of my friends are having surgery over the next six months that the altar for our group, there's no room on it anymore for all the names. So for those of us who are getting older, there is loss, a lot of it. But even for the young people in my life, the kids that I still visit with at school, there is loss for them, especially those children who were trying to go to school during COVID. They lost a whole year of schooling. And that may not seem so terrible if you're old enough to study on your own. But 
I remember one day, early on, during COVID time, watching a little five-year-old trying to figure out how to swing. Usually by five years old, you understand that push and pull principle, because it's a little counterintuitive. But here was this five-year-old totally baffled by trying to figure out when to pull and when to push. And when I went and spoke to the teacher afterwards, she said, oh yes, that's usually something they learn in nursery school, but they weren't in nursery school. So there's all kinds of loss. And so I'm always reminded of the five recollections of Thich Nhat Hanh. Beautiful. Uh, my friend Inja, who is a wonderful calligrapher, um, did a version for me that hangs in my guest bathroom. And this is so that everybody who comes to my house, they have to see this, because <laughs> I think it's so wonderful. I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. My actions are the ground on which I stand. The first three of these recollections are, of course, exactly what Siddhartha's awakening was all about. Of to old age, to illness, and finally to death. The fourth recollection is his understanding that no matter how wonderful his life was, change and loss were inevitable. And yet, by understanding the true nature of reality, the way things actually are, his life became both authentic and precious. The fifth recollection is about emptiness. No abiding or permanent state. The only thing that we can actually point to as ours are our actions, karma. Consequences are mostly beyond our knowledge. You know, if I drop my stick, it's going to make a noise. That's a small consequence. But if I say something unkind to someone, they might be a very good actor and act like it doesn't matter. But I don't actually know how that is going to play out in that person's life. Knowing that we cannot escape the consequences of our actions 
means that we take special care to be thoughtful and reflective about what we say and what we do. But if it's all going to be taken away, which is basically what Thich Nhat Hanh is saying here, physically, mentally, emotionally, all of those capacities that we've come to take for granted, but little by little they're, they're being taken away. Well, if it's all being taken away, on, on what do we rely? We cannot rely on anything or anyone, not even Buddhism. We can only rely on authentic action that's informed by diligent and honest meditation, self-reflection, in which our Buddha nature has this chance to be revealed. So when some of us from here and from my group were at the Branching Streams Conference, we were gifted with an evening of poetry reading by a former laureate poet from Santa Cruz. It was beautiful. She was amazing. But the thing that surprised me after she had read many of her poems was she said, okay, now you're going to do something. I was like, oh no. <laughs> she said, I'm going to give you a prompt. And you're, you're going to break up into smaller groups and you're going to talk about the prompt. So there were a number of us in a big room, maybe about, I don't know, probably about half the size of this. And we broke up into groups of about eight or ten. Diane was in my group. And uh, we were off to one side. And because we were all in the same room, it was easy to sort of hear what was going on, but not exactly. What you heard, at least from my group, was a lot of laughter or loud voices or every now and then you'd hear death or dying or loss or you know, you'd hear a word, but not in my group. <laughs> I don't know what it was like for Diane. <laughs> But there were 10 people in our group, and we all sat there in a circle for five minutes, I am not exaggerating, in complete silence, while all of the rest of the room is just, you know, going at it. And I remember thinking to myself, oh boy, do I have to be the first person to go here? I really don't want to be the first person to go. But after five minutes of sitting in silence, it's like, okay, fine, I'll go. <laughs> the prompt was merely this. Practicing loss. So what I said was, you know, all this time, I thought that I was practicing acceptance but now that I think about it, you don't have to practice acceptance of all the good stuff that happens to you. That just sort of comes naturally, right? 
what you're practicing always is acceptance of loss. And it was because of the way this poet, just she just said those two words. So for me, I've lost hearing in my right ear. Oh, so I have a hearing aid. Okay, I can deal with that. But now I'm losing my sight to glaucoma. And I'm actually going to have surgery in January to see if they can do something about that. The rest of me is in perfect condition. It's so ironic. All these years of good diet and exercise and doing all the right things. And it's my eyes, which is a genetic thing from my father, that is going to cause trouble. The wonderful thing in my group was that nobody jumped in right away. And I realized afterwards, and maybe Diane, this was your feeling too, it was because everyone was being so very thoughtful. The answers they gave to that prompt, heartbreaking, heartwarming, desperately honest, open, and authentic. A woman had just found out that her sister had terminal cancer. But she said, the amazing thing is we're closer than ever now. And another young man said he was practicing the loss of silence. And we all looked a little like, what? And it is because he lives in a very noisy suburb. He said, I can never get away from the noise. So I have lost silence. Loss, turns out, is a very deep and profound topic. And there is not one person who gets away without it. There isn't even one sentient being. Every animal also loses. Every plant loses. The nature of life is loss. And so that is what we are practicing. We are always practicing loss. How do we deal with this? How, how do we not just completely fold up into a little piece of you know, jello and, and crawl under the table and disappear? Because I know a lot of people right now, given what's happening with Israel and Gaza and Ukraine, that's how a lot of people are feeling. They're feeling despair. So first of all, we can take heart from Thich Nhat Hanh. But second of all, we need to come back to the most significant core text of our practice. The Heart Sutra. In the Heart Sutra, it says right at the beginning, therefore, given emptiness, there is no form, no sensation, no perception, no formation or consciousness, no eyes, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind. 
No realm of sight, dot, 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 and no realm of mind consciousness. There is neither ignorance nor extinction of ignorance, neither old age and death nor extinction of old age and death. No suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path, no knowledge, and no attainment. I remember my very first night at Kanondo, back in the old days, hearing this for the first time and thinking, what? What do you mean no eyes, no ears? I've got eyes, I've got ears. What? I don't understand this at all. And I remember that night, we had a guest speaker. I had never met Les before that evening, and these two black-robed gentlemen are sitting in front of me, and one was kind of skinny, and the other was kind of fat, and I didn't know which one was which. Well, it turned out that Mel Weitzman was the guest speaker that evening. So, because I am not shy, when it came time for questions, I raised my hand. I said, so I don't get this whole thing about no eyes, no ears, no, no. What is that? And Mel said, don't worry, you'll understand one day. <laughs> and he was right. But I went out to him afterwards, and I went right up, and I said, so this is my first night. <laughs> he burst out laughing. He said, well, no wonder you're confused. <laughs> and I was. And this is partly due to the Heart Sutra itself, because this is this, this one sheet that we're reading from is a distillation of volumes of information. So many words have been left out. Of course we're confused. So if we don't know that, we might think that this no, which in the Japanese version, as you know, is mu, is the opposite of yes, which it's not. Nothing could be further from the truth, actually. It's not nihilistic. It's not a downer, as some people have said. Because it is important to understand that there's all these words in between that are missing. No permanent abiding nature of eyes. No permanent abiding nature of ears. It doesn't say that we don't have them. It just says they're not permanent. There is nothing that is. Everything is on its way to becoming something else, including you and me. And the word emptiness, well, it's an unfortunate word. <laughs> it's the English word that we use to talk about this no abiding permanent nature of anything. But of course, when people hear empty, it sounds like the void. But again, I come back to Thich Nhat Hanh, who basically said, yes, but if something is empty, it has to be empty of something. Right? If, you're, if your cup is empty, well, it's empty of something, but that doesn't mean it's actually empty yet, is it? Because there are still atoms of air in your cup. So the word emptiness 
The reason it's considered to be one of the three marks of existence, which are supposed to be self-evident truths, is that nothing is permanent, and we know this. We can see this in everything in our life. Wars are not permanent. Boundaries are not permanent. Kings and presidents and emirs come and go. So do we. There is no such thing as I separate from everything else. Nor is there a you that is separate from everything else. Because right now, we're all breathing the same air. So when is it mine? And when does it stop being mine and become Umar's? And when does it stop becoming Umar's and become Kathy's? We're all in this all together. We are sharing everything so intimately, but we don't see it that way because it looks like there's this separate entity here. But even you know that whatever you had to eat before you came here tonight does not look the same at this point as it did when you put it in your mouth. And later it'll look even different. <laughs> Deeply understanding emptiness. The fact that there is no abiding permanent nature of anything is absolutely essential as an antidote to despair. It means that we have the possibility to be changed, always. That we can do something differently than we did it before. That some unknown outcome can happen. That the thing I did yesterday affects the thing today, which will affect the thing tomorrow. This is hard to wrap your mind around, especially if you don't see the consequence in front of you. But it's true. So instead of spiraling down into despair and hopelessness, we can actually begin to experience our oneness with everything. And that is a truly hopeful thing. So there's that wonderful um, Enlightenment poem, the Xin Xin Ming. That is another core sutra song of enlightenment about emptiness. And the author of this says, Just let things be in their own way, and there will be neither coming nor going. Obey the nature of things, i.e. your own nature, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. One thing, all things. Move away and intermingle without distraction. To live with this realization is to be without anxiety about non-affection. To live in this faith is the road to non-duality. The most important line for all of us, to live with this realization of emptiness, of your total interconnection with everything, is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. The biggest difficulty for everyone is this deep 
worry, anxiety, that we are not enough as we are. When there are wars going on, when fires destroy Lahaina, when earthquakes leave thousands of people homeless, we want to help. That is our first response. We would love to be able to do something. And we don't know what to do. You know, we can send money. We can offer bows and prayers. It never feels like enough. But there's actually one thing that we can all do. And that is to completely understand connection. To completely be at ease, as Dogen says, the Dharma gate of joyful ease. Anxiety about non-perfection. We spend our whole life doing this, carrying a burden of thinking we're supposed to be something else. When who we are and what we are is precious and perfect. And as Suzuki Roshi said, that doesn't mean there isn't room for self-improvement. But we don't worry about it. Each day we get out of bed and we think to ourselves, how can I be of service today? That is the Bodhisattva vow. How can I be helpful just in my own little tiny life? What can I do? So when Suzuki Roshi said, when he was asked why he sat. And of course, he answered it many different ways, but my favorite response always was because he hoped that in the case of an emergency, he just might do the right thing. He was talking about the emergency of every moment. Not the emergency where you imagine you are the hero because there's an accident and you get out and you do CPR on the person and magically they come back to life. That's a rare event. No, the emergency is that your husband has for the umpteenth time left something on the counter that was supposed to be in the refrigerator. And instead of yelling and screaming and going, why don't you ever remember this? You take a deep breath. And you realize, oh, here's the emergency again, because the emergency has to do with my response. It doesn't have to do with what's left on the counter. When we are angry with someone, when we feel left out, when we do not feel respected, when we feel alone, those are our feelings and we need to acknowledge them. It doesn't mean that other people are not being provocative. But it means that perhaps, after taking a breath or two, we can respond from a different place. We can respond from clarity and kindness rather than from anger and upset. So I want to share a story, the last thing, that was told to me. I was on a retreat with Gil Fonstall many, many years ago. And most of the things he said I have forgotten, but I have never forgotten this story. There was once a monk 
who was highly accomplished in deep concentration, but he just could not seem to break through to awakening, to an understanding of that total connection. Finally, the abbot said, well, I can think of only one more thing to do that might help you let go of your fear of letting go. Oh, the monk's eyes filled with tears of gratitude that quickly changed to terror when the abbot said that he would have to go into the basement and enter the door to the abyss. The abyss was feared by all the monks, and they used to go out of their way to avoid even passing by the door. Such terror emanated from it. Still, it was the last chance for this monk, and he knew it. So he and the abbot went to the door. No one had entered this door in three generations. But the secret of it had been passed on to each abbot until the current one, who now had to share it with the monk. This is what he said. I will open the door, and you must walk inside. Then I will lock the door so that you cannot come out. And when you are inside, you must walk across the room and exit on the other side. And with that, he pushed the monk in, closed the door, and locked it. Now, the monk saw that he was in an enormous room, at least a hundred feet wide. And sure enough, there was a door on the other side. However, the room had no floor, just a dark abyss that was so deep, he could not see the bottom, but which creaked and groaned and grinded loudly with an occasional belch of fire. He was standing on just a little ledge, a foot wide, and was so frightened that he sat down right next to the door. He spent four days like this, wondering, what to do, looking for an escape, or perhaps a hidden way to cross the abyss. Sometimes he would start banging on the door and yelling for someone, please, please let me out. Sometimes he would just sit there and give way to complete despair. But finally, reviewing the instructions yet again, he decided that there was nothing for it but to try to walk across the abyss and see what would happen. As he stepped forward with his right foot in fear and trembling, the ledge extended itself just enough to meet his foot. This was so unexpected and unnerving that he sat down and waited an entire day until he tried it again. But just as before, the ledge extended itself just enough to meet his foot. And in this way, he eventually got to the other side of the abyss. 
and he exited through the door, never fearing the unknown or letting go into it again. I have been thinking about this story for years. There's a lot of unpacking that could be done, but I am reminded many, many years ago a very a person who became a very dear friend of mine. At that time, we did not know each other, and she had heard from someone at my school that I had done some hospice work with one of the little girls in my school who got a brain tumor. And I had seen that little girl through two years of her dying process. And this was being described to her by another teacher, and she said, oh, I wish I had someone like that in my life, because her husband had recently uh, come out of remission for cancer, colon cancer. And he was dying, and she was terrified. So my fellow staff member told me this, and I said, well, ask her if she wants to talk to me. I'm happy to talk to her. And so the person came, and that time I was, I was still working in the library. She came into the library and sat down, and I said, so tell me what's going on. And she started, well, my husband had cancer. And, and then he did chemotherapy. And then he got better. But then just recently, they discovered it's come back. And it's worse than ever. And in a month, this is going to happen. And then in two months, this is going to happen. And in three months, and, you know, she started to cry. I said, whoa, whoa, hold on. Let's just take a pause and a deep breath, first of all. Okay. You're talking about something that may happen three or four months from now. But what you're forgetting is that you're going to go through every hour between now and then, and you're going to be learning and growing And each of those moments will prepare you for what you're looking at in the future. Right now, you're looking at a future that you are completely unprepared for. Just like this monk. He was not prepared to go through that door because his fear was overwhelming him. But when he finally realized he had no choice, and what is it about loss, after all? We have no choice. I did not ask to have glaucoma, as I'm sure many of you did not ask to lose your hearing, or your hips, or your brain. (laughs) Nobody asks for these things. But they come to us. And we have to meet them one moment at a time. So what we have to ask ourselves is while we are practicing loss in every moment, we are also practicing joy. I just received an email from someone who used to practice here a long time ago. She practiced with my group and then she practiced uh, with Reb at Green Gulch, and she has pancreatic cancer. 
And she was talking to me about the word meaningful. She said, all these years, I was trying to find out what was meaningful. Well, what's meaningful is being able to get out of bed these days. What's meaningful is going out and raking the leaves when I feel like I'm up to it in my front yard and seeing the change in the light from summer to autumn to winter. Meaningful ends up being about the smallest details. So we have to ask ourselves, what is getting in our way of acknowledging and accepting and practicing loss? Because it is our life. How can we practice with this thing that is slipping through our fingers like water and still enjoy the feel of the wet? How do we walk through that door? How do we jump off the hundred-foot pole? How do we give ourselves up to the life we were given? That, I think, is what we're doing here. After all these years of practice, for all of us, if we put it all together, hundred years, hundreds of years, what we are coming to is ourself and our connection and relationship to everything. How to practice loss while at the same time acknowledging our incredible interconnection. Thank you. I would love to know what each of you might be practicing with in terms of loss and how you how you working with it. Uh, I know how I try to work with it, but I think each of us comes to it in our own way and our own time. So please share with us. Yes. Yeah. So I'm creating uh, a Please re repeat the, the question, Misha. Yeah, so the question is about the loss of intimacy, um, I'm assuming with a partner, yeah. and um, that right now things are not going so well. And at what point does this person keep trying versus does this person decide um, it's time to leave? So it's a, it's a kind of practicing loss uh, in two ways. There's the loss of the feeling of intimacy that you're feeling in your heart. And then there's the loss of, what am I supposed to do now? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Again, um, he was saying, and, and what, if, what if three months or six months from now I realize I made a mistake if I leave, right? Or, or, stay. or stay, either way. Mm -hmm. right? mm. Well, just from my own personal experience, Many, many years ago, uh, I stayed too long. Um, I knew that my first husband was not capable of intimacy, and he had shown this to me in many ways. And I kept hoping. 
I kept hoping that because I kept giving that he would eventually see. And two things happened. Uh, one is I met my husband now, <laughs> the one I have now, and realized what a vast difference there was. Okay, so there was a comparison there. But I also came to a place of understanding that I needed something that I was never going to get from this person. That actually what I needed was something in myself. And I was not growing with that person. So I think that the question that you may want to sit with is, is this a situation that you can see you growing in? Because it might be difficult, and you might still be growing from that difficulty. But if you're not growing from it, if you're actually, if your heart is closing down, that's not a good thing. And only you know that. It's one of the things I love about our practice is you can lie to everyone else, but you cannot lie to this one here. And if this one here is closing down, it's not a good thing for you in, in so many ways. But it is worth having that conversation with this person. It is worth saying, here's what I've come to. Where are you in this? And see what your partner says. See if there's any room to move. Because I, I feel for you, it's a very painful place. So I'm just going to paraphrase if that's okay. Yes, sir. So for those of you who might not have heard that, uh, James was saying that he is feeling the loss of, of friendship, um, partly because he retired, and so he doesn't he doesn't have the work relationships that he used to have, and that a lot of his relationships um, are on Zoom these days. And I would say, COVID did us no favors in that. Uh, you know, the mental health in this country is in very bad shape, and people are extremely lonely. And, and that's part of what you're talking about, but we're coming out of a very difficult time. And trying, if you retired during that time, right, or you changed jobs or the focus of your life, um, finding new ways to create community and create friendships um, is not easy. Uh, and, you know, I was very fortunate during COVID that I was at school and had way too many friends and way too much to do, right? Uh, but I know so many people who are just stuck at home for day in, day out. So I think for one thing, you know, no offense to the people at home. Uh, I think that Zoom is a wonderful thing and there are many good things about it and certainly a uh, silver lining uh, for the things that it is good for. Um, but it does not take the place of all being here together face to face, especially in meditation. 
the feeling in the room is different when you're sitting together. And so, um, but just in terms in general, uh, I, I hear what you're saying. It's a very difficult time. And I'm very fortunate in that I still have so many relationships from my time at school. But I think that was a community all by itself, as opposed to a work community where people are coming and going and they're changing jobs and the people that maybe you worked with 10 years ago, they're no longer there even, right? So... Oh, that's okay. That you that you don't feel lonely. Well, no. Okay. I mean, they don't. It's just kind of. I mean, you read everything about how you know it's important to have social relations as you grow older. I don't really, you know, feel like you to <laughs> Strange, but anyway. Well, if it doesn't bother you, then it's just fine. You know, if you're getting along and you're feeling happy in yourself and free from the anxiety of non-perfection then, no, I mean, there's, my goodness, there's plenty of people out there who go and live far away from other people for that very reason, right? Um, I think, again, we all want connection, but we don't all want it in the same way. To find out what works best for you does not make you antisocial. <laughs> or a bad friend. It merely means that uh, you're someone who values your alone time. Um, one of the reasons I think that practice worked so well for me is that I am a true extrovert, but there's this whole introvert part of me that loves the silence. Right. So meditation practice was a balance for me of the other side. I know people who are on that side, and they're on that all day long. There's no rest, and I don't know how they do it. It would exhaust me. So if you're in a good place with it, no problemo. <laughs> Is there anybody out there? Oh, yes, I see. In the corner, who is that? I, I can't see. Yes, you. What, you're talking about me, Misha? It's Dave. Yes, you. <laughs> Please, we can hear you. Thank you. Um, just a, a couple of things. Very briefly, your remarks about Zoom really hit home for me because about 25 years ago, I was actually running a research project that built a thing like Zoom. And we learned, well, we learned a lot of things, but we learned two things in particular. One is how much something like this falls short of real, intimate, face-to-face -face human contact. And the other thing we learned was that there was no way that the Internet could have supported something like Zoom 25 or 20 or 15, maybe even 10 years ago, if the pandemic had happened 10 or 15 years earlier, 
the amount of social and psychological and economic damage that it would have done would have been magnified tremendously because we wouldn't have had Zoom. But anyway, the thing I wanted to say was uh, I can really resonate with what you were saying about assessing whether a relationship is really something that you should continue and you're growing in or whether it's something that you really have to face up to the fact that it's time to leave. I went through that exact thing myself quite quite a few years ago. And the danger, the trap that I fell into was basically denial. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. I, I, I just could not face the fact that this wasn't going to work, that that I, I really had to face up to that and and do something about it. And that went on for an embarrassing length of time. Um, so, uh, yeah, it really is, uh, you know, you, you, you can't deal with loss by denying that it's there. Well, and it's an incredibly painful place, too, because you don't just suddenly stop loving someone. Right. Right. I mean, you, you might be having difficulty in the relationship, but it's not like a faucet. You don't just decide, turn it off, and, well, that's that. And, and so, unfortunately, not only is there denial, but then there ends up being guilt because you know you still care for this person. You just know that you can't stay with them. Yes, and, that, and that's, that's absolutely the way that, that I felt. And, in fact, even at points where it should have been clear that this whole thing was going nowhere, the feeling of loss. I remember actually saying to myself, this feels worse than losing my parents. And boy, that was saying a lot. Yeah. It was time to leave, yet the feeling of loss was just devastating. But that still doesn't make denial work. Well, and like I said, that was why I thought that this poet from Santa Cruz was so brilliant because all she said, I mean, she just said, I'm just going to give you a prompt. And the prompt was practicing loss. And it was just like an earthquake. And as I say, there were other groups that were just like practically shouting at each other. And our group was incredibly quiet, but everyone was taking it so deeply because everyone suddenly understood how absolutely it just like was the arrow to the target. That, that is what we're doing. And, and as you say, if we go into denial, then it's not only practicing loss, it's like, it's like digging in that arrow even harder, right? We're, we're hurting ourselves. Um, there's some loss that we can't do anything about. You know, people die that we love. Children, you know, get upset about things and they go away. And it's, there are some things that we can do something about, and then there are many things that we can't. And finding out what we can do something about and doing it, that's important. But at the same time, understanding, ah, okay, this thing I cannot change. How am I going to uh, step forward? (laughs) How am I going to walk across that abyss? I can't change the fact that there's no floor. (laughs) So I'm just going to have to trust 
Things are going to work out okay. Somehow, maybe I'm going to die. Maybe this is my time. But we have to step forward somehow. And, you know, I sent out a Thanksgiving message this year to um, my sangha and to uh, my family. And I quoted something from Nelson Mandela. And he said, you know, nobody is born hating. That's something that you're taught to do. He said, and that gives me hope, because if you can uh, learn to hate, you can also learn to love. And I feel like that's our job. That fundamentally, when we really see our connection to everything and everyone, then what we see is love, not hate. And that's what we have to put out there in setting aside our denial, setting aside our guilt, setting aside our need to be special or our fear of not being enough. Just taking care of each other. Thank you for sharing that. I think we have time for one more. Somebody wants to say something. Yeah, sure. Yes. Then it better be very, very thoughtful yeah. action. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like you can just leave with your own heart because if you just leave, you're affecting other lives too. So. But you still have to leave with your heart because your heart is with your children. Uh, I will just say that from my own personal experience at my school, some families decided to stay together for the kids. It wasn't always the best decision, right? You have to look at it from every single point of view with your heart. And you do your best. You, 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 you hang in there as long as you can. But if you start closing down, that is going to affect your children, right? It's a very hard situation to be in, and I wish you well. All right, my dears, I think I think we're done. Okay. This talk was brought to you by the Canando Zen Meditation Center in Mountain View, California. For more information or to support this podcast, go to canando.org. That's K-A-N-N-O-N-D-O dot O-R-G.